Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dan Saunders, who's vice president of Conrad Direct. He's a member of the DMAW Board of Directors and host of the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. So after you listen to this episode, jump on over to wherever you uh, subscribe to podcasts and have a, have a listen to his show and, and subscribe to that as well. We're going to talk today about the changing landscape of nonprofit agency services and what that means uh, for both nonprofits and service providers. Uh, before, before we get into that, though, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Andrew. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. It's a real honor. I've been a longtime listener and really appreciate the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Um, tell us a little bit before we get into our questions for the, for the day. Tell us a little bit more about you, about your uh, career history and, and about Conrad Direct. Sure. I'll try to give you the uh, two-minute overview here. Um, so I um, was born and raised in northern New Jersey, where I still live with my wife today. And um, like many people, I got into this wonderful industry by accident. It was not by design. Um, I was a broadcasting major at Montclair State University, um, which maybe some of that is coming full circle now with the podcast. But um, I decided that I enjoyed the program, but I just I wasn't passionate about it. I really wanted to do something where I wanted to hustle, but I didn't want it to feel like work. And I just was not finding that to be the case um, with that particular industry. Um, so I decided to finish out the program. And um, at some point, I decided that I wanted to get into marketing. I think I took a free elective, um, which really kind of piqued my interest and um, decided to go out there and just try to get in at the ground level and uh, see what I could make happen. And um, after a couple of months of uh, doing wedding videos, actually, which um, is interestingly enough, I think has um, has impacted my view of the nonprofit industry in, in fascinating ways that we can talk about as well. Um, I came across an ad on Craigslist. Uh, now, Craigslist is famous for a, a lot of different things, and some of your younger listeners may not be familiar with Craigslist, but it used to be a really good place to go and find quality jobs. And I came across a very interesting ad um, that included a blurb that said um, something along the lines of interest in politics, uh, not not required, but considered helpful. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've always been interested in politics and public policy. And um, I applied for the job at Conrad Direct, where I still work today, and um, kind of just immediately developed a, a passion for the industry. Again, knew nothing about it beforehand, but really just kind of fell in love with the idea of using uh, a combined mix of art and science and data to help nonprofit organizations uh, raise more money and, and grow their donor files, and um, really just took a, took to it right away and um, started by processing orders, entering spreadsheets, all the basics, and have been fortunate to work my way up to uh, being vice president now at Conrad Direct, as well as a DMAW board member and 
just thrilled to be part of this great industry and thrilled to be uh, talking here with you today, Andrew. Awesome. And, and give everybody a quick, you know, 30 seconds on what Conrad Direct does. So Conrad Direct is one of the largest independent list brokerage firms um, in the nonprofit sector. And we're probably most well known for our work in the political marketplaces. Um, if uh, listeners are familiar with me, they may be aware of my work in the conservative and libertarian marketplaces, but we're very proud to work uh, with nonprofits across the spectrum, including uh, environmental, historical preservation, um, charitable relief, uh, and others. And we also are um, unique in the sense that we have a for-profit division as well that does consulting works with uh, for-profit companies. So we um, really bring to the table a, a holistic uh, perspective towards uh, nonprofit fundraising and marketing that's influenced by uh, a really broad base of knowledge. And um, that's what we do. And and uh, hope that covers it. Yeah, awesome. All right, so let's let's jump into this. You know, you've as you just shared, you've spent your entire career in the brokerage arena, um, and and that's a really focused, specialized area of of you know nonprofit fundraising, um, and, and of the you know of the entire overall nonprofit sector. How how is how is the work you do evolved, um, and how is the way that you engage and serve? nonprofit organizations changed over time? Well, it's interesting because in some ways, I think that the model that we need to have as um, list brokers, which is a very defined business model, so we don't provide agency services. Our sole business model really is is commissions on on list orders. Um, We have always been in the mindset, and Conrad's been around for a little over 35 years, that um it was our we needed to make other people's jobs our jobs there is no saying that's not our job that you need to be involved in as many areas of client services as possible because if you can do something to help um everything run more smoothly that's a win for everyone it's a win for the organization if it helps improve their program and ultimately it's a win for us as as a company so we've always kind of been in that mindset but i would say that um over the last decade or so, I've seen the industry evolve much more to um, an added value model. The list business is highly commoditized. Uh, I don't think that I'm saying anything out of school here, but we all essentially work from the same pool. And of course, there are things around the margins uh, where different list brokers have different approaches and have their own unique value. But really, what a, where a list broker stands out is that added value and added knowledge that they're able to bring to the table. It's those discussions about uh, short and long-term strategy, what we're seeing in the mail out there. I mean, list brokers uh, are in a unique position that we are seeing mail from across the marketplace. So we know the techniques that mailers are using. We see the signers that are out there. Um, We are aware of trends. And and we've always felt that we're in a position um, to really bring that knowledge to the table with our clients and our agency partners that we work with as a source of added value, but also as a way to make their life easier, which ultimately is a win for everyone. But I've definitely seen the uh, the list brokerage, um, I've definitely seen the list brokerage model in general, especially over the last 10 years, kind of evolving to a point where you have to involve yourself in everything and be aware holistically of what's going on in the industry because 
Um, you never know what qui- what questions are going to come your way, even if it's not an area of specialty that you uh, directly work on. But also, there's a lot of emerging trends that could be complementary for direct mail. So it's advantageous in that sense uh, to be able to have discussions about other trends and other techniques and channels as well. For sure. So uh, kind of a follow-up to that, something that I've seen uh, that I've been surprised by emerging in just in the last, you know, I don't know, six to 12 months is the the handful of of brokerage houses that have started to add agency services. Do you do you think that's something that's uh, just a one-off or, or do you do you see the the industry headed in that direction? I think it very much depends on the company and their culture and uh, their mindset. So we have always felt that um, our clients come to us for our independent mindset. And um, because of that, we work with agencies from across the industries and the agencies know that we're uh, an honest broker. Our clients know that we're an honest, independent broker. We don't own any of our own data. We really try to be just um, that extra set of eyes that's keeping an eye on everything and having that independent mindset. Um, In in our case at Conrad Direct, we have felt that it's, um, it's a strategic advantage to remain independent and not provide agency services. Um, But certainly there are a lot of companies that have to make those decisions and um, have to make that call if they're better served providing more uh, services directly. Um, But um, I think, and this is something we can get into in the conversation, I think the, the expansion of that question is if you decide to go into full service agency in this landscape where I believe last time I checked, there's at least a dozen fundraising channels. There's probably even more than that right now. Do you try to be everything to everyone? And even if you are a full service agency, can you realistically provide and service every channel or are you going to have to work in a a collaborative mindset anyway? Um, So I think even the companies which do decide to take on, um, uh, full service, uh, a, a full service model, still will find themselves needing to collaborate in order to add value to their clients and remain competitive. Just because uh, the industry is growing so rapidly, and it's hard for any one company to do everything at this point. It is, you know, it's it's interesting you say that. So I I made the leap back in I think it was October of last year. I, I left a small uh, independent. Uh, direct response agency, and I uh, I joined the Moore Enterprise. Right, so um, the one of the biggest reasons that I made that change is because of the the way that Moore is investing in building talent and building companies. Because there is no one agency that can do it all. Right, and any any one agency that tells you they can do it all is lying to you about something. Right, um, but in in a portfolio company like I'm in, um, you know, one of the beauties is I can say, oh, wait a minute, we have this need, and there's a company in the portfolio that provides that service, so I can plug into, you know, different uh, different partners within our our um, suite of companies to to solve those those client challenges, and whether you're doing it that way or, you know, partnering externally with with other companies, I think you're right. I, I I'd be hard pressed to find any single shop that can deliver the highest and best value to a client in every channel or, or really in, in every audience engagement. Um, so I, I do think that we're headed more towards an arena where 
uh, collaboration and partnership are sort of the, the requirement of the day versus one agency saying they can do everything on their own. And, and I completely understand the temptation uh, to expand your services and to be able to um, be compensated for things like creative services sure. and, and package development. I totally understand it. But I think if I think in some ways it's a losing battle if your uh, strategy as an individual company is to try to charge for as many services that you can provide directly, just because it's going to be impossible to keep up. And even if you expand, um, you know, even if you're uh, a direct mail list broker and you decide to expand into um, agency services uh, exclusively focused on direct mail, in my opinion, in today's landscape, you still need to have a working knowledge of social media, live stream fundraising, of text, SMS, because you're going to get these questions thrown at you by your clients, whether you want them or not. And, and my personal opinion about this has always been that every time you tell a client, I don't know, you're giving up your seat at the table. Hmm. You're basically inviting someone else to be brought into the room. And wouldn't you be better served making a connection for your client to another vendor who maybe you have a business relationship with, maybe you don't. But even if you just make that connection, that in itself is so intrinsically valuable for client services. Um, wouldn't you be better served being able to do that than to try to provide every service you can directly um, and maybe not doing it well, or just deciding that you're still going to remain focused on direct mail or just on digital and not have that holistic knowledge. Um, because in many cases, I think companies are selling themselves short by not um, having a holistic knowledge of what's going on in the industry, because there are a lot of things that could add to the uh, services that they do provide directly. And th that's always been my mindset as a direct mail list broker. If I can help point a client in the right direction for another channel or even find uh, help collaborate on a channel that could add value to direct mail, that's a win for everybody. It's a win for the program. It's a win for us as a list broker. And it's a win for the company that's helping provide those digital services. Yeah, for sure. So let's, let's drill down a little bit. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, I don't know how long they've been around, but cooperative databases, you know, are, are still, I think, to some degree considered the new shiny object in you know direct response fundraising um, and there are a lot of them out there uh, how how has the emergence of co-op databases changed your business and changed how nonprofits think about um, identifying and reaching new audiences well there's no question that it's become a big part of what we do as list brokers and I would say on any given day, co-ops could be anywhere between a third and a half of the volume that uh, many of our clients do water. So it, it's a huge part of, uh, of what we do now. And, and we have been in the mindset um, from the beginning that this was something that we needed to embrace. Now, there's a lot of challenges there as a list broker as you start um, bringing in cooperative databases. But our philosophy has always been that if we can help organizations uh, find new sources of names to mail. Again, that's something that over the long term is going to be beneficial for everyone. But but I actually, I think as co-ops came onto the scene in nonprofit space, there was maybe a thought that they were going to phase out the importance of the list broker. But now that there's so many co-ops, 
and co-ops are so dynamic. I actually think that list brokers have a bigger role to play than ever. You know, any, or I'm sure you would agree with this, that any organization that's just taking segment one, segment one, segment one is not using co-ops in the right way. So we've had success um, using our knowledge of the vertical list universe of different, uh, of how different types of donors intersect and different types of affinities to help organizations dig deeper into cooperative databases, as well as to adapt um, a list broker's mentality towards testing that, yes, you should be testing into deeper segments. And even if you go into segment two and then segment three doesn't work, that doesn't mean that segment four may not want to work. It may not work. It may be counterintuitive, but as list brokers, we know that um, you can have the best names in the marketplace, but if they're being mailed all the time, they may not be as good as names deeper in the co-op. So we've really pushed our clients into adopting that uh, brokerage testing mentality towards co-ops, not just in deeper segments, but also looking for ways to uh, tap into different themes uh, within co-ops and be able to leverage a universe that may not come up to the top in, in conventional models. And, and I think that uh, that mindset and bringing that that rental and exchange list mindset over and applying it to the co-op world has been really beneficial. And, and I just think, especially now that uh, co-ops have pro- proliferated the way that they have in the nonprofit side, which I think is a wonderful thing, um, there's a huge role there for brokers to play Uh, in the middle, just helping keep track of everything and making sure that organizations are utilizing these co-ops to their maximum advantage. Yeah. Okay. That, that resonates with me. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how, you know, firms like yours, how guys like you uh, collaborate with other service providers across the sector. Um, You know, Oftentimes, I think organizations, they hire an agency and, you know, it might be a full service agency and, and everything gets done under one roof. But there are a lot of nonprofits out there that, um, that pull together, you know, an independent list broker, an independent creative agency, an independent production company, you know, to, to do their work. And, and what, what does that collaboration look like? How do you do it well? I, I think it starts with, with, um, having a knowledge base and demonstrating an interest uh, for the client and making it clear that you do have working knowledge in this area and you do have an interest in knowing um, what they're doing on the digital side of the organization. A lot of organizations are still extremely siloed where the direct mail teams don't talk necessarily talk to the email teams and social media is kind of farmed out as a communication tool outside of development. Um, But more often than not, you know, it's, those connections are only an email introduction away. And then you find out um, what partners that those departments are working with. And and from there, um, it becomes, uh, it's definitely a challenge when you have a siloed structure, um, but I think it becomes less of a challenge when everyone is convinced that you're in it for the right reasons. We're not trying to compete for development dollars. We're not trying to take credit for donors. We're trying to add value and make the program work better. And in a lot of cases, in a way that will work advantageously for the other vendor. So when you get those introductions, I think that's the key with collaborating with outside vendors and people who work in different services, is just making it clear that uh, 
they're doing it in a non-threatening way that we're trying to add value to what you're doing because in the long term that's a win for everybody so a great example of this is if you collaborate with um, a, a digital agency who it does uh, social media work or email work and you just you strategize on ways to co-target um, your direct mail prospects and serving them uh, social media ads and, and in a lot of cases, um, they may be doing something similar outside, independent of direct mail. And you can share knowledge about, well, what's working on the digital side? What works on direct mail? And putting together ideas to um, to put together a campaign that's going to be effective and provide a boost for direct mail. Again, adding the value of what everybody is bringing to the table for the nonprofit. And I think that's how you do that effectively is you come into it not in a competitive mindset, but in a collaborative mindset. We're all in this. We're trying to add value to the client. At the end of the day, of course, we want to make money for our companies, but that will all happen if we're all providing value and we're coming, we're dropping our egos and, and we're all trying to uh, add value to each other. And, and I generally find that in most cases, whether you're talking about mm-hmm. internally inside organizations going from department to department or um, working with outside vendors, that if you come to it with an approach of, I'm trying to make your life easier, most people will be receptive to that. And I think that's how you break those barriers down and and foster those collaborative, collaborative relationships. So so let's let's dig into that a little bit from an operational perspective. So I've, I've worked on a number of uh, nonprofit programs in the last five years where there were five, six, sometimes seven different uh, partner agency you know, whether it's a, a brokerage company, a, a creative company, a digital company, print production, sometimes all of the above, uh, strung together by the organization because the organization said, you know what, we want to go get the best provider of each of these discrete services, right? Rather than trying to find one agency that says they can do it all. But the the challenge that I've experienced is that, you know, the the strength of of traditional agencies, one of the strengths, in my opinion, is typically really solid project management. So without that at the table, you know, you have all these independent partners sort of doing their own thing, but there aren't a lot of nonprofit organizations that have a deep strength in project management internally. So how how have you seen organizations just manage the workflow well, right? Because if, if there's a nonprofit out there who's thinking, oh, maybe I want to go in that direction with my business, or maybe I've never done direct response before and I want to start it and they're thinking about starting it with sort of a portfolio of partners. Um, you know, I think that project management piece is a really critical one that often gets overlooked. What have you seen work well? Well, um, that definitely starts at the top. You know, the fact is is that if you have a siloed organization, you're going to have siloed vendors. And when nobody's talking to each other, um, I think there's a lot of lost knowledge and there's a lot of lost opportunity to work together. I mean, a really basic example uh, is I think that uh, one of the most underutilized assets that nonprofit organizations have is the feedback that gets generated from their social media posts. People are mm-hmm. taking an action. They're telling you what they're excited about. They're telling you what they may be unhappy about, but they're taking an action that's not prompted. Yeah. And there's a lot that you could discern from that that could be useful for direct response fundraising. But if the social media page is run by somebody who's tucked away in a communications department and you have a silent structure, those people may never talk to each other. So I, I think it starts with 
having a culture inside the organization of shared goals, not focused on individual goals and individual budgets. We're all trying to figure out how can we um, how can we raise the most money and grow our mission, expand our impact, and and put an emphasis on working together. That definitely is a leadership and cultural thing that needs to be implemented from the top. Um, now, I, I could tell you in most cases, if you come in as an outside vendor and you start talking about let's break down the walls, um, let's break, let's unsilo everything. It sounds great. It's really hard to do from the outside. It is. Um, but I do think that outside vendors have a role to play in this. And and my philosophy has always been don't try to change everything all at night. But if you can lobby, if you can get one test, and that's the type of thing that starts opening eyes. So if you can uh, either collaborate, if you're working on direct mail and you can find a way to collaborate uh, with the folks who are running um, the social media page on a co-targeting campaign or uh, or or do a multi-channel campaign with email, uh, even it, it's going to be a big you know time investment because you have to get people to work together and you might have to be point on communications between different departments inside the organization. But if you can generate that one test and you find that adding email to direct mail communication provides a significant lift, in my opinion, leaders at nonprofits are very results oriented. They're very pragmatic. And when they yep. see evidence, then all of a sudden they say, okay, this is something we need to be doing more of. So I would say to outside vendors, regardless of what channel that you're working in, that's the best way to open eyes if you want to do more collaboration. If you think there's lost value there, is don't try to lobby to reorganize the organization because that's probably not going to work. But if you figure out one test, that you're confident in, um, and you can produce data to back up um, breaking down the silos inside organizations. That's the kind of thing which will open eyes and which will encourage leadership to try to encourage more of that collaboration. But there's no question, it starts at the top. It starts with creating a culture of teamwork, of shared goals, of collaboration. And that stuff just doesn't happen organically. It usually has to be an edict that comes down from the top for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So something else you and I were talking about offline before we jumped on the, on this conversation was the just you know what you're seeing around the the concept of specialization in the marketplace and and what that you know what that might mean for us for the future. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing there. Yeah, I mean, the nonprofit sector is growing in just extraordinary ways. And I think that's a wonderful thing that we're trying, that we're finding uh, new ways to bring in different types of donors. And it's really exciting for the um, the growth of the industry and the growth of generosity in general. But I think what concerns me is that you have a lot of companies that are doing wonderful things on, on, on Facebook or live streaming. Um, we haven't even really tapped into voice, but we have no idea how smart speakers are going to transform giving. DRTV is another one. And in a lot of cases, I don't see a lot of collaboration with other vendors or other channels um, mm. because it's understandable. We're all competitive and it's natural to think of um, every channel as competing for development dollars. Um, but in a lot of cases, and and I admit I have a self-interest in this, but in a lot of cases, um, emer uh, vendors who work in emerging channels that may be doing wonderful work independently 
don't have a working knowledge of direct mail or they view direct mail as a competitor uh, or they think that it's it's good branding for them to kind of be anti-direct mail because they want to be modern. They want to yep. be cutting edge. Um, but in a lot of cases, I think that's to their detriment because let's say um, you're let's say you're doing a lot of great work with Facebook fundraising um, and developing relationships with um, Facebook followers through direct messaging. There's a ton of value that could be added to existing direct mail donors. I think that's what a, a lot of um, newer vendors in the industry don't see the bigger picture on is you have a ready-made pool of, of, of donors um, who are direct mail donors in a lot of cases. And their value can be increased by adding additional layers to that relationship, whether it's Facebook, whether it's email, whether it's live stream fundraising. Um, and, and I think there's a lost opportunity there for them to add value to existing direct mail donors by the same extension. Direct mail vendors who are not looking into these other services are probably missing an opportunity as well. For one thing, they could form collaborative relationships with these vendors who are um, not necessarily new, but certainly newer to the business compared to um, legacy channels. Sure. Um, they could form collaborative relationships and maybe work out new business models for things like referral commissions and, and things like that. Um but they also have an opportunity to use these new trends, to use these new technologies to add value to the donors that they're acquiring. Um, there's a big, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the big multi-channel uh, fundraising study that came out. It was uh, from uh, Virtuous and Next After. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you had a chance to look at that. But that showed that just sending emails to direct mail donors added a significant amount of value to their lifetime giving and their retention, whether they ever gave. Yeah. And I think that kind of thing is potentially transformative. And it really tells me that there should be more collaboration. Um, but again, organizations are very siloed. Vendors are very siloed. We're all competitive by nature. It's totally understandable. But I think we're kind of missing the forest through the trees here that we have the ability to make our services more valuable to our clients and help them raise more money by adopting a collaborative approach with companies who provide different services that may be able to add additional layers to the donor relationship, which, which I think will make them more valuable and more loyal in the long run, which should be a win for all involved. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I was working on a, a pretty large international relief uh, and development uh, program a couple of years ago. And one of the things we saw was <clears throat> donors who gave in two channels didn't, didn't matter which two, right? Just more than one um, were something like 125 to 150% more valuable than a single channel donor. So whether they gave to mail and phone or phone and online or email and mail, didn't really matter which they they still saw an increase in value over their lifetime to the organization compared to someone who only gave in mail or only gave an email or whatever one channel. Um, and and we kind of continue to see that sort of trend, right? I've I've seen a number of files where where the the multi-channel donors on the file, though they're a small group, might be 300% more valuable than a a, a single channel donor. So I think the idea of of collaborating and aligning resources to really 
encourage that kind of crossover behavior for donors is really critical. Um, and, and, you know, like you said, it's ultimately, it's all about how do we increase the value to the charitable organization? But I think it's also, how do we increase the value of the experience to the donor, right? Because right. If, if we're not serving them experiences in the channels that they prefer, and we're only serving them experiences in the channels that we profit from, uh, they're either going to disregard the experience and, and not pay attention elsewhere, or they're going to walk away completely, right? Because someone else is going to serve them a better experience. So I, I think it's critical for us to, to make that kind of leap. I mean, we, we know the playbook for this because every big, um, every big retailer is doing this. They're hitting exactly. you from every channel and they don't care whether you go online or whether you get a coupon in the mail and then you take that to the store. The point is to drive conversions. And I think that's a critical mindset for the nonprofit sector to adapt. I also think we have to rethink what multi-channel giving is. Does it mean you make conversions on two different channels? Mm-hmm. Or if you're a direct mail donor and then the organization adds an SMS program and the text message that you get, you don't respond to, you don't donate, but it prompts you to give um, to, through the mail when your mail piece comes. Technically, you're not a multi-channel giver, but you're interacting through multiple channels. You're receiving value through multiple channels. And I think that's where we need to drive the conversation is how are we delivering value to uh, to the donor? Um, not so much where is the donor responding? And this is where things get complicated with things like attribution, but that's why I I think it is helpful to have a holistic picture. And if you know that your texts and your emails and your social media content is helping to drive direct mail conversions, each of those components is individually valuable and nothing will be as valuable if you remove one of those components. Uh, So that's, that's, that's one thing that I, I think would be, a healthy conversation for the industry as whole is is how do we redefine what's a multi-channel giver? Um, kind of along the line set of how retailers would would define a, a multi-channel multi-channel buyer. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on there, and it's it goes back, like you said, to that attribution issue, right? So if your attribution model always gives a hundred percent of the credit to the conversion channel, right? The 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 last step in the pathway then you're only ever going to pay attention to that channel, right? But if if you've got a model that weights the interaction across channels and, and says, okay, well, yes, we know this donor completed the transaction on a web form, but we also know that they received a mailing or a postcard or they got an SMS message or they got a video you know, um, email or whatever, and you, you start to build a methodology that that weights those independent interactions and and gives you know marginal credit to to them you can start to understand that these these constituents actually have a much richer engagement with you than just being a direct mail donor just being a, an online donor it's difficult to do it's time consuming it's expensive and it's imperfect and and often those three things when they converge scare a lot of people off but i think if we're going to get to a place where we really move the world forward for organizations that are doing direct response fundraising. We've, we've got to get to that kind of environment, you know, and and a lot of it does, a lot of it does sound scary, but I'll give you a very, um, 
low tech baseline example that just about any nonprofit can do. So I'm a huge proponent that organizations who have direct mail programs also look at their digital donors and do matchbacks to their direct mail files, even if they're not intentionally driving digital conversions, which is probably another conversation onto itself, whether we should be trying to do that more. And, And the temptation to not do this is because those donors are probably being credited to the digital program and the digital program needs them to make their budget. Sure. And my response to that is, even if we're going to determine that this donation was triggered by direct mail, we're not saying the digital isn't important or you should pull money away from digital. We're saying that that digital experience was critical for getting that conversion, which was triggered by direct mail to happen. And if anything, maybe we should be doing more testing about optimizing things like Google keywords and landing pages and seeing if there was a way that we could even take it to the next level to get more digital donations that were triggered by direct mail. And and that's the kind of thing that without reinventing the wheel that I think most organizations could do just as a baseline, this has always, we know this has always happened at a low level, uh, direct mail donors going online to make donations. But I think it's something that's that's growing, that's only going to continue to grow, especially as older, quote unquote, traditional donors become more comfortable with digital technologies. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you hit something that's really important. So, you know, th- this idea of um, who gets the credit, right? And, and where do we shift the budget? And I think that comes... You know, it comes from a couple of places. Obviously, it comes from a place of if if you you know if you're playing a zero sum game inside an organization and, and either one team gets the credit and one doesn't or vice versa, then you have a problem. The other place, though, I think comes from from the desk of the CFO, right? Because I think that there's this this false belief that started probably pretty early on that if I can just get more donors to convert to giving over email or to giving online, I can stop my mail program. Or if you're in a, a, broad, a bigger organization, I can stop DRTV if more donors will just start giving to their email, right? Because email is quote unquote free, you know? Um, and, and, and there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between channels that drive behavior and channels that capture contributions, right? Um, and some do both. But, you know, what we've seen consistently is when you turn off a driving channel, let, let's use, uh, digital display advertising, right? Banner ads. So if you look at banner ad performance unto itself for most organizations, it looks kind of terrible, right? They're really expensive relative to other digital tactics. They have a low conversion rate. Um, there's typically a low level of revenue associated with, with a display ad campaign. When you look at how display ads impact search traffic and how you get pretty massive increases in search conversion when you're doing display alongside it, all of a sudden you realize, wow, there's actually a a pretty big improvement here, right? Or the same can be said for for something like, um, you know, uh, spot radio campaigns, right? We've seen a lot of uh, productivity where, you know, you run spot radio campaigns alongside um, a lapsed reactivation direct mail program or a, a donor acquisition program in direct mail. And you can pretty clearly identify, oh, this is when the radio ads were running and we saw spikes in response on the following couple of days, right? Now that's not a that's not 
you, you can never draw a one-to-one correlation and say this absolutely caused it, but the the correlation is significant enough that you can't ignore it, you know? So I, I think, you know, part of the challenge that that we've always dealt with is, is that C-suite finance executive saying, well, wait a minute, I thought the whole promise of this was to be able to turn one off and save that money. Yeah, I think there's a larger conversation there that if you're judging your fundraising by how much money that you're spending, you're probably not doing it in an efficient kind of way. To that's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably a, a much that's probably a podcast topic onto itself. But there is a wonderful case study that the American Cancer Society did uh, several years ago, where they shut off their direct mail program as as a test. And not only did they find that they took a huge hit to revenue uh, donations, which are being driven to other channels, they found that they were taking a hit for people that were volunteering for things like walks because direct mail was driving other actions. So yeah. that that's a great uh, that's a great example, along with what you mentioned about things like display ads, is that you can't just judge these things based on ROI metrics. You have to look at are they driving other activity to other channels, and then how can we budget in a holistic sense where we can where we're not just we're not just um we're not just thinking short-sighted and cutting something off because it looks like it's not producing enough revenue or, or being too expensive and and I think getting back into the budgeting conversation I, I think I think a really healthy conversation is empowering development directors and moving away from line item budgets where you start the year trying to predict uh, how much money you're going to invest in social and email and DRTV and display. Because think about it, if, if you had your line item budgets set up prior to the pandemic, how, how do you plan for that? How do you adjust on the fly if you have to go have committee meetings to get more money um, approved for social media after the pandemic hits? Whereas if you have uh, a more fluid structure, and I mean, I love sports analogies because to me, you know, the boards are are the owners and they should entrust their high level C-suite staff to be the general managers, right? Usually the owners are not picking the players because right. usually that doesn't work out very well as, as cowboy fans can tell you. Um, <laughs> but um, if you trust your development personnel to make those decisions about where to allocate their money and you and you give them the power to make those decisions in real time, that's when I think a lot of this gets easier, not just if an emergency hits, but also just if a new trend takes off and you want to be able to shift resources into that uh, channel on the fly without going through an extensive budgeting process. That's such a great point. I mean, I, I'm always sort of stupefied when I walk into a room and someone says to me, yeah, I see that we're getting three times the revenue over here, but my budget's locked and I can't move this money. You know, and it's like, in what world did you plan this where you can't, you, you don't even have the benefit of being opportunistic, right? Not, not even about a crisis, right? Um, but, you know, you've got a channel that's doing two or three times better and you're locked into spending money over here instead because that's what you told somebody on January 1st you were going to do. Um, and again, I, I think you're right. It comes back to those organizations where the board is playing an inappropriate role of you know not setting policy and strategy, but um, setting day to day operational expectations and 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 almost you know managing uh, at the board level. Um, and those those tend to be you know the really dangerous and really sad instances where 
where organizations end up, you know, just critically underfunded and, and under um, leveraged based on their talent and their opportunities because they're stuck in old thinking. And, and I and I get it. I mean, it's about control and it's about accountability. And you know, we're 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 fiduciaries for our donors' money. So I totally understand the mindset. But at some level, uh, shouldn't you trust the people who you're hiring to make these decisions? And think about how that transforms an organization when you empower staff to make these decisions based on their professional judgments. Not even just at the C-suite level, but even at at entry level, allowing um, people who work in development to, to make decisions about things like A/B tests or or co-targeting, having channels working sure. together yeah. without having to go through a committee meeting to, to make that happen. To me, it just transforms a relationship when you empower staff, and it also unlocks a lot of hidden potential. I mean, uh, I think one of the biggest underutilized resources, not not just in nonprofits, but probably just in general, uh, in business in general, are entry-level um, millennial or Generation Z employees who probably have a better idea, better, uh, better than the C-suite staff about how to make social media work and how to generate engaging content, which is going to develop community and relationships. And why not empower them to try some of these things? So I think that that sort of um, uh, that that sort of mindset of of assigning responsibility and having trust throughout an organization and empowering individuals to make decisions, uh, it's something which could have a transformative effect from the top all the way to entry level. Yeah, I agree, and I think you know the. I've chaired my number of nonprofit boards and sat on others. And one of the things that I always try to push through is the idea that while we are responsible for the financial health of the organization, that doesn't just mean looking at today's balance sheet and managing it to mitigate loss, right? It also means being responsible for growing it. And I think that's one of the areas, you know, and again, this is one of those, it could be a whole podcast unto itself, but, um, you know, if, if a board is unwilling to do the things that grow revenue and only want to focus on uh, limiting spend, because that's what they think success looks like, uh, in my mind, that's a, a board that is uh, overrun its, its welcome and probably needs to be turned over. And it's also important to recognize that this is not an issue exclusively in the nonprofit sector. Oh, for I mean, sure. There's, yeah. there's publicly traded companies that make short-term decisions every day, which hurt long-term. I mean, the yeah. first thing that companies, a lot of companies do during a financial crisis or a downturn is they pull back on marketing when that's probably the last thing that you should pull back on. So that yeah. mindset is pervasive across businesses. But if you look at the successful transformative businesses, they all have that long-term mindset where they're looking at long-term investments and they're not afraid to take chances. I mean, a lot of people laughed at Elon Musk when he started SpaceX and right. he's laughing now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So we've got just a couple of minutes before, uh, before we got a break for the day. Do this for me. Uh, help our listeners understand, you know, it was a couple tips for the nonprofit organization that maybe has not jumped into a relationship with an agency or with a partner like you all, um, what, what are some things that they should be thinking? How should they approach that initial engagement 
um, to be most successful? I think it starts internally first. And, and this is where smaller organizations, they usually view their size as a competitive disadvantage, but I actually think it's a competitive advantage in this mindset is that you have an incredible ability to turn the page and start a new tomorrow and to say, okay, we're going to have a collaborative mindset. That means everybody internally is not just thinking about how they can meet their budget and maximize the donors they acquire, but how can we work collaboratively to improve the donor experience and raise as much money as possible. That then trickles down to everything else because then the vendors that you bring in um, should be instilled with the same mindset that yes, you're a direct mail list broker, you're a direct mail agency, you're a digital agency, but we encourage collaboration because we want to have holistic multi-channel relationships with our donors. So in a lot of cases, nonprofit organizations are going to get what they demand from themselves as well as what they demand from their vendors. And if you create that culture, I think a lot of the behavior will fall in line and, and follow. But it starts with having uh, shared goals and encouraging people to want to help each other, not just look out for their individual metrics. And, and I think that's where a lot of this begins. Perfect. That's brilliantly said. Thanks again for being here today. I thought this was a great conversation. Uh, looking forward to our next one, man. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, it was a real honor to be here. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all the great work that you're doing. Hey, before you jump off, how do people find you and connect with you? Um, best place to connect with me is probably on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me there. I uh, share all kinds of thoughts and content on my LinkedIn page. And uh, the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast is my personal podcast, which you mentioned before. Uh, we're on all of the platforms and uh, would love if you subscribe, gave it a listen, and uh, feel free to send me any feedback. But our uh, our mission there is to provide value to the nonprofit sector and encourage innovative discussions like this. So if you like this discussion, I encourage you to check out the podcast. Awesome. Thanks again for being here, man. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. You too. Have you read my Amazon number one bestselling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.